Hey, good morning. Uh, today, we are starting a, a new series called Pillars, and over the next five weeks, we are going to look at some of the, the basics of what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to be a Christian, and so today, we are going to talk about people, because I'm not sure if you know this, but you and I, we are people, and that's kind of what this whole church thing is really about. For the past two and a half years or so, we have heard almost constantly about how we should be keeping our distance from one another. I still remember, probably like you do, when social distancing was a brand new phrase. And it was almost, it was almost a comical phrase that it was like, what does this mean, social distancing? Right at the beginning of the pandemic, I was at the grocery store and got in line behind this, this old man and he turned around and mockingly said, well, stay back. Keep, our, keep your social distance from me. And, and now, we all know exactly what that phrase means as soon as we hear it. It's ubiquitous. It's everywhere all the time, and it's just part of our collective vocabulary. Now, for some of us, people like me, uh, I was thrilled at the notion of having to stay home, to not, not have to leave my house. I, I am an introvert by nature. I force myself to be an extrovert because I have to. But I would much rather stay at home, be, be by myself, not have anybody bother me. And, and so when the pandemic rolled around and I was told you have to stay home, you are not allowed to go to dinner with your friends, you can't go anywhere, I was happy as a clam. But then there are other people amongst us, the social butterflies, who has, they have really struggled with this notion of socially distancing. People like my wife, who are an extrovert to the max, they thrive being around people. My wife felt almost like she was being punished, not being able to hug people, not being able to have close, intimate conversations with people. And it's because people like that recognize the need for social interaction. Matthew Lieberman is a neuroscientist from UCLA, and he has made a name for himself studying what social interaction does to the brain. In an interview with the Scientific American, he said this about the data. Across many studies of mammals, from the smallest rodents all the way to us humans, the data suggests that we are profoundly shaped by our social environment, and that we suffer greatly when our social bonds are threatened or severed. We may not like the fact that we are wired such that our well-being depends on our connections with others, but the facts are the facts. Now, what this means is we need each other. We need relationships with people not with avatars or screen names or even just a face on a screen. We need relationships with real flesh and blood people. We need to be close to, another, to one another, even when it's risky. Now, please understand, I am not saying that we should completely stop social distancing or throw all caution to the wind regarding this current Pandemic. In fact, I don't think that's a very good way to love our neighbor. And when this whole thing first started, I got into a very heated argument with a family member whose name rhymes with mother-in-law 
about <laughs> whether or not wearing a mask was a way to love our neighbor. But if we're honest, loving our neighbor is something that we as humans struggle with. Because before we love our neighbor, we often want to know who they are. What do they look like? What religion are they? Who did they vote for? Who are they attracted to? What country are they from? We want to know these things before we're willing to call them neighbor. And this isn't a new problem. In fact, it's one of the oldest problems in human history. But in reality, there is nothing godlier we can do than loving our neighbor. Jesus has asked in the book of Mark chapter 12 what the greatest commandment is. And he says this in verse 30 and 31. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. But we have, we have ways around that whole loving your neighbor thing, don't we? The solution is just to create a very narrow definition of who our neighbor is. And then the whole thing becomes very easy because let's be honest, it's easy to love people who have the same values I do. It's easy to love people who look like me, act like me, talk like me, vote like me. It's not difficult to love people who are just like me. And I would argue that, that many of us define neighbors in that way, and we're pretty good at loving our neighbors then. We're happy to love them. But sort of the question I want to ask this morning is, what if our de definition of neighbor is too narrow? What if we need to broaden the scope of who we mean when we say, my neighbor? And lucky for us, Jesus answered this question directly in one of his most famous parables that I would bet everybody in this room has heard before, because even a lot of non-Christian people know the parable of the Good Samaritan. It begins in Luke chapter 10, verse 25, and I want to set the scene a little bit before we get into the text, because the text just sort of jumps right into the story. But what's going on here is Jesus is in Jerusalem with his disciples, and he has sent them out to go do good works in his name. And they went and did that, and they did all kinds of unbelievable things, healed people, cast out demons, and they are coming back now to tell Jesus the good news of everything that has taken place from their mission. And Jesus is with them, and he's rejoicing, and it's at this moment that a lawyer walks up to Jesus and asks him this question. So that's what we're going to pick up in verse 25, and it says this, Just then, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? The lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have given the right answer, do this and you will live. Now, I'm convinced if the Bible were to end right there, following Jesus would be pretty easy. Love God and love neighbor so far as I define my neighbor. But I think we need to ask 
a question of this lawyer right now. And that question is, what is he really asking? Because it sounds to me he's asking a very specific question. And that question is, what is the minimum required of me to get into the kingdom? What's the least amount of work I can do and still get in? And I think that's a question a lot of us have asked in a lot of different aspects in life. What is the bare minimum required of me? My favorite professor in college was one of my Bible professors. And in his syllabus, he would define exactly what you had to do to get a very specific grade. So he had all these different tracks you could follow if you wanted to pursue a specific grade. If you wanted to get an A, here's the work that you have to do to get an A. If you want a B, so on and so forth, all the way down through a D minus. And one semester, I stupidly signed up for 22 hours of weekly coursework. It, it was, I was trying to get finished early, and I thought, I can knock this out. And I knew that he offered these different tracks. And so I decided, you know, I'm just going to do the minimum in this class. And I understand that it's exciting to hear that the guy preaching used to do whatever he could to do the bare minimum in a Bible class, but you're going to have to bear with me for a second. Because when I, when I went to my professor and I told him, because you always had to go and tell him face to face, and I think it was a shame thing now that I think about it, you had to tell him, this is the track that I want to follow. And so I said, hey, I want, I want to do the C track. And he looked at me and, and he said, no. Actually, he was Australian, so he said, no, mate. <laughs> he said, you're going to do the A-track because you can do better than the bare minimum. So I took the A-track. I didn't get an A. In fact, I would have gotten the grade I was going for had I gone for the C-track, but <laughs> I had to do it because he told me I could do better than the bare minimum. This lawyer was asking Jesus, what is the minimum? And Jesus, like all good rabbis, answered a question with a question. What does the law say? And the lawyer, keep in mind, he's an expert. He knows what the law says, and he technically gives the correct answer. He says, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor, and they are technically the right answer. But honestly, what good is a right answer when there is no action attached to it? A right answer with no action is useless. Barbara Brown Taylor, she says this about right answers. A right answer has never picked up a frightened child or put an ice chip in the mouth of a dying friend. A right answer has never written a check to the Red Cross or pried up stinking linoleum from a kitchen floor in the Ninth Ward of New Orleans. A right answer has never even showed up at the polls to vote on Election Day or taken to the streets in peaceful protest. It kind of makes you wonder why religious people spend so much time vetting each other on right answers when the truth is that a right answer alone could never change a thing. The lawyer... He isn't finished with his questions. He wants to dive even further into this whole minimum thing. Because in verse 29, he asks Jesus, and who exactly is my neighbor? In other words, who do I have to love to fulfill the law? 
Now, at this period of time in Jewish history, neighbor was very narrowly defined. In the Old Testament, it says that a neighbor was a fellow countryman, but also a foreigner or what, he, what the Bible referred to as a resident alien, somebody not from your land but living in your land. But at this point in time, it had kind of evolved into a place where it was just other Jewish people, my fellow countrymen. And then, even over and above and beyond that, your elite class would define it even narrower. People who lived in the same social strata that I lived in, in the same upscale neighborhood. Maybe even people like this lawyer. So he's asking, who do I have to love? But Jesus, as he so often does, cast a wider net for who a neighbor could be. So starting in verse 30, Jesus begins the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it says this, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers, who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, now let's stop here for just a second because a lot of us in the room probably don't know what a Levite is. A Levite was a person that was born to the tribe of Levi in Judaism, and they were often assistants to the priestly order in the sacrificial system. So they were people that were very strongly identified with the temple, holy people, okay? So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side, but a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him. And when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Now, what's crazy about this story is the way Jesus chooses to set up the characters. Because we know very little about each of them except for their ethnicity. We know that three of them are Jewish and one of them is a Samaritan. We know that the priests and the Levite are people who would have been seen as holy, pious, close to God, having and giving the right answers, while the Samaritan would have been seen by most as a heretic, somebody that believes the wrong things. Someone who gives the wrong answers. But in this story, the two men who believe the right things and give the right answers do the wrong thing, while the one who believes the wrong things and gives the wrong answers does the right thing. And I know that this story is hard to translate in our modern world because we just don't quite get some of the animosity between these two groups. And so I, I kind of want to put this, I want to frame it in a modern-day modern version. And it's not going to be exactly the same, but, but bear with me. So we've got this American citizen. He happens to be a Christian, citizen here in Shepherdsville. For whatever reason, he, he, needs, to, he needs to go, so he's walking along 44. When he's, he's jumped by a couple of guys, beaten up, robbed, and left half dead. And if I had to guess, those guys were probably from Mount Washington. So he's laying there, and, and 
And the first guy that comes upon him happens to be a pastor, someone who leads a church, maybe even the church that this guy attends. And he sees this poor man, and he just keeps driving. He was probably upset that the Packers lost. (laughs) Now, let's say the second guy is a well-known local businessman who also happens to be an outspoken Christian. He has a little Jesus fish on his business card. He's a deacon at his church. He, he even volunteers in the kids' ministry twice a month. And he sees this guy, and he, he doesn't even consider pulling over. I'm not putting that guy in my car. And then let's say the third guy that comes upon him, let's say he's a devout Muslim. He immigrated here from Afghanistan or Iraq or or Syria. And he sees this poor guy and he he pulls over, picks him up. He puts him into the back seat of his car knowing that the blood is never going to come out of the interior. And he drives into a private clinic and he gets the guy all checked in and he tells the people in registration, hey, whatever this guy needs, here's my credit card. I'll take care of it. And I'll be back in a week to check on him. And if my line has expired, I'll dip into my retirement fund. Whatever is needed to take care of this guy. That discomfort that you feel right now at who the hero of the story is, is similar to the discomfort that this lawyer would have been feeling And all of the people standing nearby would have been feeling at hearing that the Samaritan is the hero of the story. What's so funny to me and what I have to think about when I read this story is the lawyer's response because Jesus asks him after he tells this story, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers. And he, the lawyer, said, the one who showed him mercy. This is just my own little interpretation, but the lawyer can't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. That's how uncomfortable he is. He has to reclassify this guy. But what does Jesus say? He says, go and do likewise. Be like the Samaritan. In a 1960 sermon on the Good Samaritan, Martin Luther King, whose birthday we just celebrated this past Monday, said this. The first question which the priest and the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But the Good Samaritan reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? Indeed, the Samaritan was great because he made the first law of his life not self-preservation, but other preservation. Ladies and gentlemen, as Christian people, the first law of our lives should always be other preservation. Doing good for our neighbor in spite of what that might mean for our own well-being, our own convenience, our own wants and desires. 
doing good for people who we may need to reclassify from stranger to neighbor, if not reclassify from enemy to neighbor. And that means as the Samaritan did, coming near one another, drawing close to each other, getting into each other's neighborhoods, literally and figuratively. We need to be close, emotionally, spiritually, and sometimes physically. Our small group ministry is kicking off again this week, as Jeremy said just a little bit ago. And I, I can't express to you how important being a part of a small group is in terms of having the opportunity to love your neighbor, of having the opportunity to draw near to one another. Because ultimately, this whole Christian thing that so many of us claim to be about is about people. It's about you and me and the Samaritan and the foreigner, the stranger, the person we may have seen as an enemy before, entering into each other's neighborhoods and making it one really big neighborhood. And I think another word for that neighborhood might just be the kingdom. So let's ask the question of ourselves, who is my neighbor? Is my definition too narrow? Are we too limited on who we are inviting into our neighborhoods? In his book, Luke for Everyone, N.T. Wright, who I don't think I can preach a sermon anymore without quoting this guy, says this, I have to think in reference to the Good Samaritan story about who God's kingdom is really for. Is Jesus saying that God's kingdom has all sorts of people in it I never expected? Because that certainly is what the first Christians discovered very soon. The question now is then, is whether we will use all that Jesus is telling us here about love and grace as a call to extend love and grace to the whole world. No church, no Christian can remain content with living life in a way that allows us to watch most of the world lying half dead in the road and pass by. So the question I want to leave you with today, the question I, I want to ask myself today, is not what's the bare minimum, but rather, who is my neighbor? And more importantly, what am I going to do about it? Let's pray together.